0: This is a coffee Contrails reading of The Grasshopper Man by T. Austin Campbell, chapter 7, as read by Scott Rassman. Doug was perturbed. After all he had been through in China so far, he didn't want to attend a business meeting. But the telex had been from the president of the American Psychological Association, asking him if he could spare an hour or two to establish contact. With groups of psychologists in Beijing, Huangzhou, Lanzhou, Shanghai, and Xi'an to discuss psychoanalytical techniques and to present a paper at the next U.S. National Meeting on the state of the art in China. It also hinted at future trips for him and several other American psychologists at Society expense. This latter insinuation had tipped the scales for Doug. Since their itinerary did not include Huangzhou. He had spent several hours with an interpreter arranging for a meeting with psychologists from Guangzhou, which was to be held on Kowloon in central Hong Kong. On the day of the meeting, he and his interpreter took a taxi to as near the office building as he could. They got out near the road leading to the police station near the handicapped craft center. And there he was, the man who had helped them in the alley. He was sitting on a low stone wall fashioning a grasshopper from what looked like bamboo stalks and twigs. Doug asked his interpreter to follow him and walked over to the man, easing his way through a small crowd of tourists who were watching intently and talking loudly in several languages. How are you? Doug said to the man. I wanted to thank you for your help. The man looked up quizzically while the interpreter translated into Cantonese. The man smiled faintly, showing a brief glimpse of missing teeth, then spoke softly for about a minute. He says that he was very glad to help you. He sends regards from his daughter. How is she? Did she get away okay? Doug asked. Yes, came the interpretation. They let her go. She can be quite persuasive. Good, Doug said, looking warmly into the old man's face. And how is the elderly woman? She appeared to be ill. My wife, the man replied to the interpreter. She is still quite ill. I'm sorry, Doug said. The old man turned back to his work, shaving the bamboo strip until it was very thin, then notching it and fashioning each grasshopper with speed and precision. How long has he been doing this? Doug asked. He has forgotten, the interpreter said. I guess most of his life. Doug looked at his watch. Damn, we have to go. Tell him thanks again, and please tell him I'll be back to talk some more later. And please tell him I hope his wife is better soon. The message was translated, and they quickly set off towards the underpass, smiling at the man selling ties from a rickety metal rack for the equivalent of two U.S. dollars. About halfway through the tunnel, the interpreter looked back, then stopped. Why is he following us? Who? The man, the grasshopper man. The man was limping rapidly along and slowed as he approached them. He spoke to the interpreter. "Uh, He wants to accompany us, the interpreter said. Why? Doug asked. He didn't say. Doug shrugged, smiled at the man, and motioned for him to walk along with them. They exited the underpass, Then the interpreter motioned for them to turn right up the narrow street past the Kowloon Hotel. Here we are, the interpreter said, pointing to a low, fairly new office building. Doug turned to the old man who was watching him closely, his eyes alert and quizzical. He spoke to the interpreter. What did he say? asked Doug. "Uh, He says that you left before he had a chance to tell you something. He says... Please don't forget the way back to the handicraft shop. That shouldn't be a problem. It's right around the corner. Doug smiled quizzically. I won't. I will be there later. The man approached Doug slowly, raised his head, and held Doug's eyes. There was something poignant, powerful about the old man's eyes. No, the old man said. You must find your way back. The old man looked into Doug's eyes for a few more seconds, then bowed slightly, turned, and limped back towards the main street. Doug watched him for a few moments, then said, He speaks English. What? the interpreter said. Why did he make me translate? Doug shook his head as they turned him under the building. They rode the elevator to the seventh floor as instructed. Like many in China... The elevator smelled strongly of garlic because the chinese often ate a clove of raw garlic after meals to reduce their blood pressure the door opened and he stepped into a narrow but well appointed hallway he walked briskly to the end turned right as directed and entered the second door on his right he was pleasantly surprised by the decor a beautiful double-sided silk embroidery dominated the spacious office and there were several large dazzling paintings hung in areas where they would be noticed but would not detract from one another. An attractive Chinese woman sat behind a rosewood desk in front of the door. She smiled at them both, spoke in Chinese to the interpreter, then looked at Doug. Good afternoon, Dr. Scott. All the others are here, and you can go right in. She motioned to a door to the right. Doug thanked her and walked towards the door, marveling at how excellent her English was. He knocked, and a pleasant voice bade him enter. The room was rather dimly lit, but absolutely elegant. Doug smiled inwardly and thought, This is nice. I think I'll decorate my office this way. He laughed to himself at the very possibility. Good afternoon, he said. I'm Douglas Scott. A dark rosewood table dominated the room, and several middle-aged Chinese men, impeccably suited, sat around it. The ceiling was done in gold leaf, and the walls were covered with huge silk embroideries, each worth tens of thousands of dollars by Doug's estimate. An older man at the end of the table stood, again spoke to the interpreter in Chinese, then said, Good afternoon, Dr. Scott. How nice of you to take time from your vacation to join us. May I present Dr. Chin Yi Su, Dr. Tez Tong, and Dr. Ruling Song. As he introduced them, they each stood, smiled pleasantly, and shook his hand vigorously. When the introductions were completed, the man nodded, and all sat. The man looked at Doug pleasantly. I am Dr. Zhu Yu. We all speak some English, but I have to admit, in all modesty, that my English is perhaps the best. Thus, I have been elected spokesperson. It is good, anyway, that you brought an interpreter. Your English is excellent, Doug said. The man looked pleased. Thank you very much, my daughter and I. The young lady who greeted you when you arrived had an excellent teacher. Well, now to business. We are very grateful for the opportunity to discuss psychoanalytical techniques with you, I am sure the science has advanced in the United States far beyond the level we are at here. During the Great Cultural Revolution, we did not practice at all being occupied with other more important things. Doug was sure of the sarcasm, but Yu's face remained impassive. Now the government of the People's Republic of China is encouraging us to practice again, and we have much ground to make up. Doug thought quickly. Well, I don't feel comparisons are really in order, Dr. Yu, because we have very different cultures to contend with, and thus our methods must vary considerably. A Very good point, Dr. Scott. Well, perhaps you could begin by asking us some questions about general techniques and perhaps about some specific techniques, and thus we can compare and contrast our methods. Doug nodded. That sounds like a reasonable approach. They sat back, watching Doug closely. Well, Doug began, as a clinical psychologist, I see a good deal of anxiety neurosis. How prevalent is it in the People's Republic of China, and what is your general mode of treatment? It is a common malady in China also, and one that is perplexing in that it's so mundane and thus of little professional interest. As for treatment, we generally recommend talk therapy unless there is sufficient justification for psychoanalysis which requires at least three one-hour sessions per week. Is this consistent with your general procedures? It was. They continued discussing various other general mental areas, acute paranoia, sexual dysfunction, various common phobias, and in every instance they were in almost complete agreement. Doug was quite impressed and very pleased, they had done a remarkable job of catching up and the stress of living appeared to have the same effects on the psyche and the same treatments were as efficacious in their culture as in his. Dr. Yu was speaking and he refocused his attention, putting on his best clinical face. One disorder that we are all quite interested in is paranoid schizophrenia. We are interested in your theories on the root cause of this disease. Doug thought for a second. Well, that's difficult to answer. There have been several explanations offered, but I believe the most prevalent one, the one I give most credence to, is the theory that biochemical imbalances lead to synaptic dysfunction. Doug thought, I wish to hell Joyce was here. She could have given a much better answer than that. It's a shame she wasn't invited. I could have brought her anyway. I really should have. Chris and I owe her a lot. He leaned forward. His mind was wandering. He had to concentrate. Yes, Dr. Scott, we have read extensively on the biochemical theories, but we have a different explanation. We believe that the disease is caused by external forces. He sat back, watching Doug's expression carefully. External forces? You mean childhood trauma? Persecution? Those forces are quite important in other disorders, such as neurosis, but we feel that traumatic experiences have little bearing on the onslaught of paranoid schizophrenia. No, what I am referring to is outside forces of a different nature. Let's look at the facts. Research has been conducted on this disorder for decades, and yet the disease is still not well understood. Nor is treatment, either medicinal or psychotherapeutic, very effective. Could it be that researchers are looking in the wrong place for an answer? Doug shrugged his shoulders. You're right that very little progress has been made. Perhaps a new approach is in order, but in which direction do they go? What sort of outside forces could be causing it that have not been investigated? Dr. Yu paused to answer a question from Dr. Song, asked in Chinese, then turned back to Doug. Please keep an open mind on what I am about to tell you, Dr. Scott. He looked briefly around the room, then continued earnestly. "'What would be your reaction to the concept that these people are living several lives? Now, I don't mean multiple personalities. I mean actually existing in more than one place. The disorientation, the voices, all manifestation of having to contend with sensory inputs from several lives at once.'" "'Good Lord,' Doug thought. "'Am I hearing this right?' These people seem to be up-to-date mainstream psychoanalysts, not radical fringe. Well, I'm committed now, I'll just have to do the best I can with this. Maybe it's just the spokesman. Could it be that it's his half-baked idea and the rest don't know what he's saying? Perhaps he's a favorite of the government and keeps his position in spite of his, what, unusual viewpoints on some subjects? Maybe he has something to do with the culture. That yin-yang-chi stuff. I'm not sure what you mean exactly. Are you talking about an out-of-body experience? We have a group of people, not a large group, that study such phenomena. Not exactly, you answered quickly. It is axiomatic that everyone's life could have taken an infinite number of directions depending upon environmental variation. Population geneticists call it genotype X environment variation. Of course, Doug agreed tentatively, waiting for what he knew was coming next. We simply believe, you continued, that what could happen is happening in a different reality. He paused to watch Doug's face. However, a person is only aware of one existence, unless he is schizophrenic. For some reason, they have the ability to experience other concurrent lives. Quite a gift. Unfortunately, it takes a considerable toll on their psyche. I knew it, Doug thought. Harrison's theory. John Harrison, a fringe psychologist and prolific writer in semi technical magazines, had expounded at length on this subject. Doug decided to play along. I'm not unfamiliar with this theory, and I do find it interesting. Was he being too pat? Do you try to use this theory in treatment of schizophrenia? We do. We have been very successful in helping the patient to live each life he is experiencing singularly, without any infringement from the other lives. How do you do that? Doug asked. By teaching the patient thought control techniques that isolate each existence one at a time. It is much easier for him to deal with them this way, and he can apply these techniques any time the experiences begin to infringe on each other. He looked closely at Doug's face. We don't blame you for being skeptical, Dr. Scott. We would be also if we were hearing such a concept for the first time. Well, it's a concept I will have to think about, but it is very interesting, Doug said as sincerely as he could. He looked around and noticed that all eyes were focused on him more intently than before. Dr. Yu sat back in his chair and smiled just perceptibly. We apologize, Dr. Scott. We did not mean to make you uncomfortable. But perhaps someday you two will leave this reality and move into another one. One never knows. Perhaps now we should go on to another subject. Doug shrugged and was about to answer when he heard a rustling sound to his left. He turned to look. It was Chris and Joyce who had somehow entered the room without his knowing it. They, too, were watching him very intently. Chris, what are... He turned back to Dr. Yu. Dr. Yu, gentlemen, I would like to present my wife, Dr. Chris Scott, and a colleague of mine, Dr. Joyce Williams. Dr. Yu didn't appear to hear, but continued with his last thought. Uh, We hope you will think about this conversation and the concept that we have discussed. Perhaps it will sound more credible with further study. Doug was about to answer when Chris said, Doug? Doug? She turned to Joyce. Oh, God, why won't he wake up? Doug stood partway up and started to speak, but sat down heavily again. He felt faint suddenly, and his head hurt terribly. "'I'm very sorry, but I I feel rather faint. "'Perhaps...' The room was beginning to spin. "'Oh, God, don't let me pass out, please,' he murmured to himself. He put his head down and closed his eyes, hoping to get the blood flowing. It didn't do any good. The room continued to spin. "'I'm very sorry, Dr. Yu,' he began. Then a wave of sound washed over him and he felt himself falling. "'He just said something.' He heard chris say excitedly he felt he had fallen only a few feet he's coming out of it joyce answered he opened his eyes cautiously then closed them quickly as a laser beam of sunlight flashed from the window lie still sweetheart chris whispered in his ear he heard her move and her voice was more distant when she spoke again can not we block off that window joyce the sun's in his face Let's try this blanket, he heard Joyce reply. They were quiet for a few seconds, and soon his face was cooler. We should move him just as soon as we can, pickup. We should move him as soon as we can, Joyce said. This might have been just the advance guard. He has a concussion, Joyce. He shouldn't be moved. We may have to take the chance. Doug fought to open his eyes again. He rolled onto his side. His head was killing him and he was still confused from the vivid dream. The room was dim with a thick blanket over the one window and he had trouble focusing. Finally, the shadowy scene came into focus, but he still wasn't sure he was seeing properly. All of the red guard renegades were lying on the floor. Blood trickled from the mouth of one and the eyes of another were surrounded with purple. He looked around for the Chinese woman. She was sitting with the two men and staring off into space. He raised up on his elbow. His voice was a raspy croak. What happened to them? He felt faint and lay back gingerly. No one answered, but Chris started to scold him. I'm okay, Chris. My head's starting to clear. You know we have to get out of here. Here, help me up. He slid his legs over the side. Damn it, Doug. We can carry you. Lie back down, Chris said. But he had already struggled to his feet. Chris started to speak, then shook her head and mumbled darkly under her breath. Doug was weak but felt he could make it, but make it to where? Reading his thoughts, Joyce said, We have their truck, and it's large enough to carry us all out of here, depending on how much petrol is left. I expect there will be more of them, and soon. Can you walk? With a little help, let's go. Chris and Joyce helped Doug to the truck and laid him gently in the back on a pile of blankets and rags. Chris stayed with him while Joyce went back for the three Chinese. She was back in about five minutes. They were following with obvious reluctance, each carrying a bundle. They climbed into the back of the truck with Chris and Doug. I don't think they wanted to leave the dead man, but finally their fear seemed to take over and they agreed to come, Joyce said. And the others? Shouldn't we tie them or something? Doug asked. Joyce didn't answer, but busied herself in helping the three Chinese settle in. Joyce! We don't have to tie them, Doug. I couldn't take the chance. There were too many of them, and they had guns. I had to kill them. You shot them all that quickly? How do you get a gun? I didn't have to shoot them, Doug. Now we have to go. She slid over the back of the truck and was gone. He remembered it now just before he passed out again. The vision of Joyce, her hands and feet a blur. Guns flying, heads snapping back, bodies crashing to the floor. Are you feeling better? Chris asked. Yeah, I'll be okay, he said distantly. He winced as the truck started with a jerk, then began to bounce violently over the desert. Chris cradled his head in her lap. In about 10 minutes, they wrenched to a rather noisy halt. Doug tried to get up, but felt very lightheaded and fell back into Chris's lap. Lie still, sweetheart. I believe Joyce can handle things. Doug managed a weak smile. Can she ever? Joyce jumped out of the truck and walked a few feet into the woods. It's okay, she called. It's Joyce. We have to get out of here. Quo's head peeked from behind a tree. What has happened? she asked we saw the red guard enter and heard the gunfire we were about to retreat back into the woods where are the others joyce asked to answer her question carol nancy and margie's heads raised and pick up to answer her question carol nancy and margie's heads raised to eye level in a ravine off to the left are are you all okay nancy asked Doug has a slight concussion, but he'll be okay, Joyce said. Let's get to the truck. But before you get in, I want to show you something. Won't we be sitting ducks out in the open? Margie asked. Why don't we just hide out in the woods? They'll find us in the woods, Joyce replied. Our best chance is to get to civilization as soon as we can. The truck is full of petrol, so we can go quite a distance. Does Doug approve of this plan? Margie asked. Oh, Jesus Christ, Margie, Carol fumed. Come on, get over to the goddamn truck. Margie gave her a dirty look, but followed the others to the rear of the truck. Joyce stuck her head into the back. How's Doug, Chris? Better, Joyce. He's dozing a little now. Good, Joyce replied. She picked up a bundle and swung it out of the truck. Okay, listen carefully. These are Uzi rapid-fire guns. They were invented by the Israelis for commando work, and they are very light but very deadly. I have no idea where these renegades got them. To make it fire, you release the safety like this, point, and shoot. If you don't hit what you're aiming at, move it around until you do. Don't hold the trigger back. Fire in short bursts. Keep it with you, but for God's sake, watch where you point it. And don't fire until dog or I tell you. All right, Quo. which way is out? Quo spoke briefly with one of the Chinese men. Mr. Wong believes that we should proceed towards the south. There are railroad tracks in that direction and some sheep ranches. Can you drive the truck sufficiently well, Dr. Williams? I don't think I should drive, Quo. If there's any trouble, I could be the most use in the rear. Can you or Mr. Wong drive? Quo talked briefly with Mr. Wong again. I am sorry, Dr. Williams. Most Chinese women are never taught to drive, and Mr. Wong has not learned either. Joyce looked around. Any volunteers for driver? Carol raised her hand. No worries. I used to drive my father's Jeep a lot. I'm sure I could drive this truck. Okay, Carol, you're elected. Quo spoke. I assume that Mr. Wong and I should ride in the front. Joyce nodded and looked around. We would better get moving. The others didn't need a second invitation, but scrambled into the back of the truck. "'Do you think there are any more red guards about, Quo? Carol asked. "'I believe the chances are quite good,' Quo replied matter-of-factly. "'Great,' Carol grumbled. "'Just what I need to get me ruddy arse shot off in the middle of a desert, "'and to think I used to like excitement.' "'Joyce accompanied the three to the cab of the truck. "'Be careful, Carol. Make the best time you can, but don't swerve too abruptly.' It's easier to flip these trucks than you might think. Carol nodded, climbed into the cab, and slammed the door. Quo and Mr. Wong scurried around to the left and followed suit. Good luck, Joyce called over her shoulder. as She sprinted to the rear and rolled into the back. She had noticed a dust cloud off to the west. She ran to the front and hollered through the canvas. Get moving, Carol! Carol had seen the cloud, too, and didn't need encouragement. She started the engine revved it a couple of times, popped the clutch, and roared off toward the south. She swung down onto the flat and put the pedal to the floor. "'Sorry, Doug!' she called back as the truck bucked and jerked about. Joyce kept her fingers crossed that they didn't hit a hole big enough to break an axle. Carol swerved often to avoid the larger holes and kept her eyes on the side-view mirror. Whoever they were, they were gaining. "'How far ahead to the railroad, Quo? she asked. "'I believe Mr. Wong said perhaps twenty kilometers.' Carol shook her head. "'Damn it! We can't keep ahead of them for that long. "'We're beyond the bloody black stump out here.' They didn't speak for about five minutes because Carol was totally occupied keeping the truck upright and watching their pursuers creep closer. Suddenly, the mirror on Carol's side exploded. She shrieked and jerked away instinctively, turning the wheel as she fought to get away from the window and causing the truck to sway violently. Screams and curses rose up from the back of the truck, and Carol pulled herself back behind the wheel, regained control, and slammed the accelerator down again. Don't fire yet, Joyce shouted to the passengers in the back. Let them get closer. When you do fire, keep the burst short and make sure you aim. Keep as low as you can, and after you fire, duck quickly. Joyce peeked out again. They were being followed by a canvas-covered truck much like the one they were in, but considerably newer. There were three men in the front seat and several more in the rear. Okay, Joyce shouted. Lay down in the back here and fire at the men when I tell you to. Now hurry. Doug, Chris, and Nancy crawled to the rear while the Chinese and Margie huddled in the front of the bed wide-eyed. Doug was wincing in pain and Nancy was deathly white. They fell clumsily in a line across the back, and Joyce scowled briefly at Margie, then fell in between them. Okay, she said, now! The Uzis spurted. Many of the rounds whizzed past the truck, but two encouraging holes appeared in the hood and one bullet ripped through the front window. Two guns blazed back at them. Get down! Joyce shouted. Her gun spurted and the man to the driver's left slammed back into seat, then crashed forward leaving a streak of red on the window. Joyce saw what they were trying. She turned and shouted, Carol, hard left! Carol reduced speed, swerved to the left, then accelerated again. Joyce ran to the front. Carol, she shouted. Try to make your way south, but don't let them get a clear shot at you. Quo, keep her in the right direction. Jesus Christ, Carol shouted back, leaning over the wheel and trying to push the accelerator into the floor. Joyce ran back to the rear and pulled a knife from her pocket. I'm going to cut holes in the canvas so we can shoot in all directions. Station yourselves back, front, and sides and try to keep them from getting a clear shot at the cab. But don't waste shots. We don't have that many. She quickly cut holes big enough to shoot through. A couple of smaller holes appeared and Joyce hit the truck bed. Station yourselves. Doug, right front. Nancy, left front behind Carol. And Chris, you take the rear. Joyce ran to the front, with great difficulty now because Carol was swerving every few seconds. She could see the truck off to their left bearing down on them. They had cut the canvas loose and were laying down behind the sidewalls. Every few seconds, a head raised up and a gun spurted. There appeared to be at least four in the back. Carol had downshifted and was turning hard to the right. Nancy's gun spurted as they swung away from the truck and bullets ricocheted off the hood. The truck swerved to the right to follow, but Carol slammed the brakes on and swerved back hard to the left. She did a racing change, straightened out, and roared on to the south. Joyce smiled grimly. Carol must have given her father's jeep pickup. Joyce smiled grimly. Carol must have given her father's jeep quite a workout. Suddenly, the tracks loomed up before them. Carol called from the cab, "'Joyce, look, a train off to our right!' Joyce ran to the right and peered through the hole Chris was stationed at. The train was about one kilometer in front, plodding along at slow speed and belching clouds of smoke and steam. Joyce got back up, ran to the front, and cupped her hands in front of her mouth. "'Carol, make for the train! Try to get alongside!' Carol geared down without reducing speed, and swung hard right, cutting behind the other truck in the process. The other truck swerved to follow, guns blazing. Bullets whizzed through the truck and everyone in the bed flattened out. Joyce crawled quickly on her belly to the front, cut a hole as low as she could, and peeked through. Carol was bearing down on the train and swerving as often as she could. They just might make it. Joyce could hear the bullets ricocheting under them, and knew they were after the tires. So far, Carol had managed to swerve enough to give them little opportunity to aim, but suddenly they hit a deep hole, and Carol instinctively slammed the brakes on. That was all the time they needed. It seemed all of the guns fired at once, and the truck listed to the left suddenly as both tires blew on that side. Carol slammed the lever into high, floored it, and they began to accelerate, but the loud slapping told Joyce that they were not going to make it. The air was suddenly replete with bullets, and they could hear the roar of the other truck very close behind. Get alongside of the train, Carol, Joyce shouted, then crawled rapidly to the rear. What are you going to do, Joyce? Doug said, but Joyce was peeking under the canvas and didn't answer. Suddenly, she rose up slightly and was gone, the canvas giving a loud pop as she bolted through. There was an explosion of gunfire, the sound of breaking glass, and the roar of an engine as if the clutch had suddenly been pushed in. Joyce! Doug screamed. He crawled quickly to the back beside Chris and raised the canvas. The truck was about 50 meters behind, laying on its right side, its front window riddled with holes. Joyce was laying spread-eagle on her back in front of the truck, and four men lay in various awkward positions behind her to the right. All appeared to be trying to struggle to their feet. Doug could see men in the cab, but none of them was moving. She had obviously jumped on the hood, killed the driver, and probably the other occupants of the cab. The driver had swerved when he was hit. Joyce was struggling to her feet as Carol pulled the truck abreast of the train. There was an obvious dark red patch on her jacket. She staggered, then miraculously began to run towards the train, but she was weaving badly. One of the Chinese men had made it to his knees and was leveling on her. Doug fired at him, but it was too late. The man's gun blazed and Joyce's face shot up towards the sky. She grabbed for her back, then crashed forward into the sand. Oh, Jesus, Doug said, then ran to the front. Carol, swing hard around. What? Carol shouted. We're at the goddamn train. Carol, Joyce is hurt. Their truck crashed. They're sitting ducks. Carol downshifted in reverse direction while Margie, who appeared ready to jump for the train, screamed in protest. Give it to them when we get close, Doug said to Nancy and Chris. As they bore down on them, the two took aim through the holes in the canvas. But when they got closer, all three Red Guardsmen suddenly raised their hands, letting their guns fall to the sand. Cover them, Doug said, and ran to Joyce, who was about 15 meters from the overturned truck. She was breathing but not moving. Joyce, Doug said gently as he rolled her over and undid her shirt. She had a gaping hole in her shoulder, which was bleeding badly. He rolled her over onto her stomach. The bullet had come out the back of her shoulder and there was another hole right about where her left kidney should be. It too was bleeding badly. Doug ran back to the overturned truck. We have to get her to that train. Give me something rags or anything to press against the wound. she's bleeding badly doug looked up one of the renegades was smiling smiling doug grabbed a gun from the ground and raised it to the man's temple smile about this you bastard he said between clenched teeth doug chris cried doug stared into the man's eyes he wanted to jesus christ he wanted to doug chris said much softer yeah, he murmured just perceptibly. Yeah, let's get Joyce on that train. They wrapped Joyce's wounds as best they could and lifted her gently into the truck. The train had stopped and several guards had disembarked and were advancing on them with guns at the ready. Quo raised her hands and ran toward the guards, shouting in Chinese. She talked animatedly when she reached them. And they were soon following her back to the truck. When they got there, Two of the guards held their guns on the renegades, while two others looked at Joyce. Doug and the other Westerners stood in shock behind the truck. The Chinese woman from the sheep ranch still had not budged from the rear, and the Chinese man was still in the cab. The two guards emerged from the truck and spoke rapidly to Quo. They say to get Joyce to the train as quickly as possible. There is a doctor there. They will take charge of the red guardsmen, Quo said. Perhaps Carol could continue to drive, and Nancy and Chris could stay with Joyce. It would be better if the rest walked because of the flat tires, Doug said. Nancy and Chris climbed back into the back of the truck while Carol rushed to the cab, started the engine, and began limping toward the train as quickly as she dared. The others followed behind, the Westerners staggering from fatigue and the guards prodding the renegades in the back with their guns every few minutes. No one talked. There was, miraculously, an empty, soft-class cabin available and Joyce was lying on one of the lower bunk beds with the doctor working over her when they got to the train. The doctor was quite elderly, and Doug guessed that he had had little training in modern medicine. The doctor had bandaged the front and appeared to be feeling for the bullet that had entered the back with a long probe. He kept shaking his head and talking to Quo, who was kneeling beside the bunk and staring at Joyce very intently. "'Doug? Chris?' a voice said faintly from the cabin. "'It was Joyce.' "'Doug and Chris pushed past the crowd at the door "'and knelt beside the bed. "'Here, Joyce,' Doug said softly. "'Don't feel badly,' she whispered. "'You both did very well.' "'Shh, save your strength,' Chris said tenderly. "'Thank you, Chris, but please let me finish.' I only have a little time. You must realize that what has happened is for the best. It will be valuable in the future. Doug and Chris looked at each other quizzically, then back at Joyce. She suddenly winced with pain. I I don't know if we'll talk in the future. I wanted you to know that this wasn't just a duty. It it was more than that, and... She closed her eyes tightly and shuddered. Then the eyes opened slowly and stared. Chris and Doug got up very slowly and left the cabin, their wet eyes reflecting the dim lights. Later, as they sat on a bunk bed and huddled closely, Chris asked the obvious question. Doug, what was all that about? What has happened is for the best. It'll be valuable in the future, and it wasn't just a duty. I don't know, Chris, Doug replied. We don't know much about how the mind of a person near death works. I suppose that she was trying to express affection and was having trouble focusing on what she was saying. Other thoughts kept intervening. She was an incredible woman. Let's try to get some sleep. It's a long way back to the next station. They lay back in the bunk and clung to each other. The clatter of the train was very soothing, as were the soft snores drifting down from Carol and Nancy in the bunks above them. Margie and Kuo were next door sharing a cabin with an elderly Chinese couple. The sheep ranchers were being taken back to their ranch by the army, who had promised to keep a close watch over them in case there were any more renegades in the area. The events of the last few days swirled before Doug's and Chris's eyes, but it didn't take exhaustion long to win out, and they were soon fast asleep. End Chapter 7 The Grasshopper Man